trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, it helps to to begin listening to this program with the understanding that uh, one of the most massive psychological wars that humanity has ever known is being waged right now. And uh, I'm not here to to give you all the answers, but I am here to provide, you know, material support and, uh, of course, some uh, mental and moral support as well by by just questioning the narrative at every turn. And uh, few people do that better than my friend Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos. Eric, great to catch up with you once again. How's life? Pretty good. I'm hiding from the sound police. Don't let them know I'm here. <laughs> I saw <laughs> I saw your column on the sound police a couple of days ago. Uh, for those who haven't been to your website, ericpetersautos.com, uh, talk to me about the sound police. What prompted this? Yeah, well, uh, in New York City, where else? I mean, other than Los Angeles. Uh, they are uh, going to go after cars that produce obnoxious, air fingers, quotes, sounds. Uh, and, of course, it's another way that they're going after cars that aren't electric cars because electric cars don't make any sound unless you turn on the artificially created sound. Uh, and they're styling it as a way to deal with cars that have too loud mufflers or don't have a muffler and all of that sort of thing. But it's clearly another attempt to uh, to go after anybody who doesn't drive an EV. And the fines for it are stupendous. The first offense apparently is $800. And then if you do a second or third offense, as they style it, it can go up to several thousand dollars. So it's quite a strong incentive to not drive a car that might run afoul of one of these roadside sound sensors and have the sound police sicked on you. Good heavens. There's just no end to the creative ways that they can insinuate themselves into our lives. (laughs) Well, you know, like you said, we are now in the the midst of fighting back uh, the greatest psychological operation that's ever been directed at the American people. And I think people are beginning to realize it, you know, that it's no longer uh, just, oh, you know, there's a bad law that's been proposed or this guy is saying something that's kind of foolish. This is a concerted, deliberate attack, and it has one purpose, which is ultimately our subjugation, our ensurfment. As you and I have talked about repeatedly, it's about recreating a kind of feudal order in which there are a handful of people at the very apex of the pyramid who own and control everything, and the rest of us below them who uh, who exist to serve and to do what we're told. Wow. Well, and, you know, I have to admit, uh, a couple of years ago, I was staying in Atlanta for a few nights, and right in the downtown area, and th- I, not only were there loud, obnoxious cars, I mean, there were, there were obviously some cars with some aftermarket exhaust that were making noise, but you know what was blowing me away worse than anything was their stereos. Even many sure. floors up on, you know, you know, 20, 30 floors up in a hotel, I could still hear and feel you know, the, the subwoofer from those cars as they would drive by in the middle of the night. Well, well first of all, you're in a city. Cities are noisy inherently. True. I, you know, I, I actually was born in New York. I'm very familiar with New York. New York is a very noisy place. It has noisy subways. It has noisy street performers. You've got guys on the street corners beating trash cans, you know, and, and culturally expressing themselves. And there are no sound police being sick on them. Uh, no problem with the cops who are shrieking their, their sirens everywhere. Uh, there are myriad other forms of noise, but interestingly, the only type of noise that's being targeted here is the noise that's coming out of cars that aren't electric cars. So, wow. you know, what does it tell you? 
Yeah, this is this is more of being uh, pushed into those electric vehicles. And I got to give you credit, Eric. You're you're one of the few voices out there that's actually talking about the downside to these EVs. I'm seeing more and more people who have bought them starting to wake up to the fact that, hey, uh, the range on this is really limited and it's more expensive than I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. And, and even the insurance is more expensive in some cases. And, and it's not nearly the bargain they were led to believe that it was going to be. Sure. What was it, John Paul? That wasn't John Paul Jones. I think it was Samuel Adams who said something about how he smelled a rat. <laughs> when, when, it, when it came to the Constitutional Convention that replaced the Articles of Confederation, that's a subject for another time. But being a car guy, you know, I understand cars. And I immediately noticed that they weren't telling people the full truth. It was all half-truths. Uh, you know, they were letting people – here's a good example. They were letting people believe that you could fast charge your EV in 30 to 45 minutes, which is technically true if you take it to one of these high-voltage fast chargers. They don't tell people you can't do that at home, and that's a really important consideration. They also don't tell you, and this is related, that if you regularly fast charge, you're probably going to reduce the service life of your battery, also a really important thing. So if you want to preserve the long-term service life of the battery, you probably want to charge it at home. But that takes all day, literally all day or all night, and that greatly restricts your mobility. They're not telling people the truth about these things. Uh, and you know, I'm you know, I'm glad that I was able to do that. I just think it's disgusting beyond belief that they haven't done that. Generally speaking, now you had also pointed out. I know you had a, a column about uh, Toyota has been kind of a, a yeah. last holdout as far as uh, jumping on the bandwagon to produce electric vehicles. I understand there's some not so good news coming from from those quarters. Yeah, you know, Akio Toyota, who is the grandson of the founder of the company has recently been eased out in favor of a much younger guy. Uh, and the reason given, and, and this is a direct quote from Accio himself, is that uh, car guys are no longer wanted at Toyota. Uh, instead, they want uh, mobility guys. The new guy is all about transitioning the company uh, into a provider of transportation as a service, meaning you push your app and your little autonomous EV will show up and, and you get, you know, you get uh, billed or debited a certain amount for being transported somewhere as opposed to owning a car and driving yourself somewhere. It's a really tragic thing. And I think it has to do, the reason that this happened, uh, has to do with the shareholders, a lot of whom are into this whole ESG thing and who have succeeded in pushing him out. It was a real problem for them that the world's number one single automaker, Toyota, uh, was publicly not into this whole EV thing. And so they had to do something about it, and they have. Wow. Well, you also point out that it's possible the electric wave may be cresting, and, and I'd like to know more about that. Are, are we reaching the point where people are starting to go, um, you know, the promises aren't adding up to, to or the, the delivery on those promises isn't adding up? Are people starting to, to pull back a little bit from this? Well, I think so. Do you remember back in December when we talked about what it costs to charge up an EV based on my personal experience? I do, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, well... Uh, I did an article the other day uh, that got into that, into some nitty-gritty, and it turns out that the lie that they told people, which was that, you know, you get an EV, you'll reduce your cost of driving because electricity is so much cheaper. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Not anymore. Now we're at the point where the cost to charge up an electric vehicle is essentially the same as a cost to put gas in the vehicle, not counting the time cost of waiting for it to charge, not counting the cost of the EV itself, which is much higher. Uh, and all of the other liabilities that you and I have talked about many times on many occasions. 
so that brings us to this EV cresting thing. You know, they, I think, are now starting to get desperate. Back in December, they increased, all of them, the cost of the EV by many thousands of dollars. Ford increased the cost of their Lightning, their Mach-E, Ford, uh, Tesla increased the cost of the, uh, the Model 3 substantially. We're talking by thousands of dollars. And now, fast forward to here we are in January, just at the end of the month. It's only been four weeks. And now they're trying to cut the prices uh, significantly. Uh, and why are they doing that? Possibly because of a twofold thing. One, people began to realize, hey, my EV's range is going to dump by 50% or more in the cold. And oh, my God, I'm going to have to orient my life around all this recharging all the time. That gets old. And now it's going to cost me a few thousand dollars more to buy this thing? Heck no, I want no part. So now they're desperately cutting the prices of these things and hoping that they can continue to push them onto the market. But I don't think it's going to be successful. And that's why I wrote this article about the EV wave possibly cresting. Well, right now we're sitting, let me check my thermometer. I'm sitting at zero degrees Fahrenheit with a minus 14 Mm. wind chill. And that's... Ideal conditions for an electric car. Right. I'm thinking if I had an electric car, the pucker factor would be pretty significant right now just because I would know I'm losing, you know, charge. I'm losing range just with the car sitting there. Now, my gas car is out there, and it's. I can guarantee you when I turn the key this morning, it's going to be sluggish, but it's going to start. If it was a diesel, mm-hmm. I'd have it plugged in and the, the block heater going, but I'm thinking internal combustion engine is the way I want to do things, at least as long as I possibly can. Well, right, and, and that's the way they don't want you to do things. And that really gets us to the bottom line here about this whole electric car thing. What they want is for you to not be able to go anywhere or at least to not be able to go anywhere as often. The whole drive behind this is to reduce driving, and the electric car is the vehicle by which they mean to do that. Well, and, and you have to wonder, too, if, if uh, you know, with the, as we had talked about before, you know, the 15-minute cities that are popping up everywhere mm-hmm. – um, if there isn't a larger issue here of, of just this is about containing people and making sure that we stay in our corrals, even though there may not be a very visible fence, you know, with, with EVs, um, I mean, you have outside control possibly for your vehicle. Can it be shut off remotely or just, you know, your access to power? Of course, all of these things are interconnected. And yeah, you know, Biden uh, issued a fatwa uh, that by, I think, 2025, maybe 2026, one of those two, I can't remember exactly offhand, but that all new vehicles that are sold in this country must have a kill switch, meaning that they can be remotely deactivated. And that goes for uh, non-electric cars, the few that remain, as well as electric cars. So there's that. But you notice that all these things have a common thread. You know, we could get into talking about the Rona, the masks, and all of that and how they lied to people to get people scared and then to get people to obey. It's the same with all this stuff. Okay, we'll come back to that just the other side of the break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. All right, Eric, we left on a very interesting note there about uh, kill switches and outside control of vehicles and the uh, just basically the ability to limit the movement of the population. And and more and yep. more, the, the song Red Barchetta from Rush is taking on deeper meaning to me. I've loved that song sure. for years, but now I'm thinking I'm going to be living that song at some point. Well, sure. And how about the Eurythmic song, Would I Lie to You? Oh, You know, there there is a common thread here. Uh, They whip up a hysteria based on, at best, a kernel of truth. They did it to us with the so-called pandemic. 
by letting people believe that there was this incredibly lethal contagion out there that could strike down any man, woman, or child, when in fact we knew very quickly that it was predominantly a threat, a meaningful threat, uh, only to very elderly, very frail, and already very sick people. You know, those are, those are facts, but they suppressed those facts, and they continued to, to try to terrify people with this idea that if they didn't put on a mask, if they didn't shutter their business, if they went to go see a friend or went out to eat or something like that, they were going to get the Rona and die. You know, and notice that the same kind of thing is being used to push these electric cars. The climate is going to change. If we don't get rid of all of these combustion engine cars right now, we're going to drown. The earth is going to die. It's the same sort of fear-mongering propaganda and hysteria. And you can trace this back even farther. You can go to 9-11 and the enemies of freedom and the Islamo-fascist <laughs> terrorists. Remember that? Oh, yeah. And on and on and on. The business of these people is to keep people terrified. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing here H.L. Mencken. Uh, so as to be clamorous to be led to safety. That, you know, is what this is fundamentally all about. And I think people should should realize that and use that as their tool for understanding practically everything that's going on in the news these days. You know, and speaking of what's going on in the news these days, haven't heard a whole lot about that uh, Project Veritas video that uh, dropped last mm-hmm. week. I'd love to get your oh, reaction yeah. to uh, the Pfizer employee, the doctor who uh, was spilling the beans on what he, th- I guess what he thought was a grinder date that turned out to be with a Project Veritas operative. Yeah, exactly. What it speaks to specifically, as far as I'm concerned, is the absolute corruption of uh, what is called the, you know, what people call the mainstream or legacy media, meaning uh, CNN, CBS, NBC, all of those people. Here you have on video, you know, this is not a conspiracy theory. This is not an assertion. It's not hearsay. Here we have on video a high-up muckety-muck at Pfizer who is openly talking about and doing it in the most obnoxious manner. He's laughing about it like it's funny about how they're manipulating viruses and, and, and doing it in order to create a manufactured need for their product, their vaccines, that they have succeeded in using the government to force on people. I mean, it's beyond belief. You know, in, in, in a country that had an operational journalistic establishment, that would have been on the evening news, and Pfizer would be out of business tomorrow, and guys like Albert Bourla would be in prison the very next day. Yeah. It's, it, and the, the silence of Pfizer was very conspicuous, although uh, somebody, I think it was Dr. Robert Malone, pointed out they did release kind of a legal non-denial. They didn't deny anything that this, uh, this doctor had mm-hmm. said on the undercover video, but uh, they dropped a bunch of legalese, a bunch of useless information, 6 o'clock, New York time, or actually, I guess it was 8 o'clock New York time on Friday night. You know, perfectly timed to miss the news cycle when everybody goes home for the weekend and basically, you know, the weekend crews are covering the news beat. You know, that's a great place to bury a story. Yeah, there, there's a moral insouciance here of a piece with uh, the way the FBI reacted to disclosures about facts having to do with their collusion with these social media tech companies to silence people for spreading the truth, which, of course, is they filed misinformation, they don't deny it. They admit it, and they're just kind of nonchalant blasé about it, in effect saying, so what? It's what we did. There you go. Eat it. You know, and Pfizer is essentially saying the same thing. And there are no repercussions. And until there are repercussions, none of this is going to get better. Here, here. Let's talk for a moment about uh, the, the also in, in part and parcel of this, the distraction that came with the videotape of uh, five Memphis police officers uh, beating a handcuffed man to death. I understand it was quite an example of white supremacy. Yes, and institutional racism, too. I mean, that's, that's how, how far we've dropped now 
in terms of the intellectual discourse at the uh, at the mainstream level of society, where you have five black cops who beat to death a black man, and somehow that's the fault of white people and institutional racism. Um, I wrote a column about it, and my my point in the column was that really what they're trying to to do with all this institutional racism stuff. And also by doing things like publishing the video of that beating on a Friday afternoon just before a weekend in the hope that perhaps it might spark some peaceful protests. What they want is to distract us all, white, black, everybody in between, and set us at each other's throats so that we don't put our hands around the throats of the problem, uh, which is, of course, these people, the government, the people who are behind all of this. It's not about racism. Uh, it's about tyranny. No, I, I'm with you. And and. And I, I appreciate those voices out there who've said the 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 problem you saw with these these police officers beating this guy has more to do with the the kind of impunity that comes from look we're a protected caste you know we're mm-hmm. we are above the law and and that attitude that comes along with it now that's not all cops I have to be fair there are, there are police officers out there who I think uh, show remarkable restraint and I think have the right mindset to go out there but boy they are the exception rather than the rule and. My understanding is Memphis actually lowered its hiring standards because they were having trouble getting people recruited to their police force. So they pretty much said yep. they would take anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's true across the uh, country. Uh, I think fundamentally the problem is we have too many laws. And specifically, we have too many laws that are offenses, meaning it's statutorily illegal to do whatever it is, X, Y, or Z. But it's not immoral. So you've got all these cops out there enforcing uh, these statutes that don't involve any harm caused to anybody. And it's created this, this police state in which you can't go outside your door anymore without, without having committed some kind of offense, whether it's not completely stopping at a stop sign, driving a little bit faster than whatever the posted speed limit is. There's an excellent book about this. I can't remember the author you may who wrote something about 100 felonies a day or something to that effect. Oh, three, felon- three felonies a day. Harvey Slivergate. Slivergate. That's the one. That's the one. And it's absolutely correct. So, you know, for the most part, most of us are, you know, moral people. And we, we do our best to go about our business without hurting anybody. We certainly don't commit murder, rape, theft, all of these other things. But nonetheless, just in the course of innocently going about our business, every single day we are technically in, in violation of some statute or other and could, could technically be – uh, accosted by a, a, a cop for that. And that's ridiculous. We need to get back to, I think, some kind of a harm-caused standard where, you know, everybody will, will, I think, agree with me that if you cause harm to somebody, you should be held accountable for that, responsible for that. But if you haven't harmed anybody, why should you be held responsible for not having caused any harm to anybody? Here, here, and And, of course, I'm sure you've heard about the talk of reparations coming out of California. <sighs> Yeah, and that's particularly despicable because there's a, there's a word in German called uh, Zippenhaft, and it was used by the Nazis. And, and what it meant was that people uh, who are related to somebody who had committed some offense, i.e. their family, would be held responsible and punished for what their family member did. Now we're talking about doing that on a multi-generational scale to people who aren't even in your family. So because there was somebody who was enslaved 150 years ago by some other person, the fact that you're white and that person 150 years ago was white means you get to pay taxes to pay money to somebody who may or may not be the descendant of somebody who was enslaved. It's an absolutely despicable doctrine. Yep. I think uh, I think all of us, at least those of us who value freedom, had better get used to the idea that uh, the, the words, I will not submit, have to be written on our hearts. And, and that has to become a part of who we are. And that doesn't mean you're, you're lawless and you're out there inflicting yourself on other people. It just means you know where the line is and you will not allow others to cross that line. 
Yeah, it means being brave. You know, those of us who are old enough to remember the 90s, or maybe it was even the late 80s, mm-hmm. will remember the iconic uh, image of that one man who stood in front of a tank in Tiananmen Square in China, who was willing to die, if need be, to stand up to tyranny. Nobody wants to be the guy who gets into a fight. Nobody wants to be the guy who gets arrested, taken to jail, or beaten, or worse. But unfortunately, as the, the wheel of history turns, sometimes we end up living at a time when it is necessary for brave men to stand up and say no. And that time is now, in my opinion. Agreed. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said it best. He said, to stand for truth is nothing. For truth, you must sit in jail. I think he was right. Yes. Eric, thanks so much. Great to talk with you once again. I'll send people to your website with a link in the show notes and look forward to our conversation next week. Thank you, my friend. Me too. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for joining us in our foray into wrong think today. I know this is a great way to get yourself labeled as a conspiracy theorist or maybe a John Bircher. I don't know for some people those are one and the same, but anyway, I'm going to tell you this. I, I've heard a lot of talk about Marxism over my life, communism, the threat of communism. and I'll, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to give credit where credit's due. I know it's, it's easy to pick on the John Birchers. Oh, yeah, they see a communist under every rock or behind every bush. But you know what? Uh, I'm not sure that the, the John Birchers were wrong. First of all, for opposing Marxism. Secondly, uh, for, for pointing out to people that, hey, there has been a very steady encroachment into our institutions. And when you look around us right now, despite all the vehement denials, proponents of Marxism are very active in many of our institutions today. And in fact, the the shock troops that you see out there on the street, Antifa and so forth, remember how we're told, oh, it's just an idea. It's It's not even an organized thing. Yes, that's very keeping with communist cells and how they operate. But nonetheless... Leftist, i.e. Marxist thinking, is finding its way into many, many parts of our our lives. And it's the denials on the part of uh, people in positions of power or influence that really make it, uh, it's just, it's kind of a giveaway that, wow, they really don't want you to consider that that might be a possibility. And you have to wonder if if Marxism is so good, you know, why, why would they not just own it? But it just seems like there's an element of deception. Nevertheless, There's an article I want to share with you. This is actually an essay from Paul Rosenberg. And it's a very timely definition of the word bourgeois, which is part of, you know, Marx's uh, lexicon describing, you know, the class warfare that is, you know, all of human history. Paul Rosenberg says, even if you're not exactly sure what bourgeois means, you've almost certainly noticed that it refers to something bad or embarrassing. At least, you know, the Marxists. Well, well, that's such a bourgeois attitude that you have. (laughs) Okay. So he says, in a moment, I'll explain its actual meaning. But he says, first, I want to turn the tables on it. He says, I want to maintain that bourgeois is good. For most of us, the bourgeois way of life is something to be sought and hopefully attained. So let's get to the proper meaning of the term. The real meaning of bourgeois is middle class. It refers especially to people like shopkeepers. And it began as a reference to people who were neither peasants, tenant farmers, or nobles, a legally privileged class. Now, there are a lot of variations, but that's the core meaning of the word bourgeois. So bear in mind that through the 19th and 20th centuries, that's a term that was grabbed by socialists who turned it into a sort of insult. 
and the variants like petite bourgeois and so on can be debated by socialist types at length. Now, he says, to, char- to support my characterization of intellectuals using the word as an insult, here's a comment from fam- a famous French writer by the name of Gustave Flaubert. Hatred of the bourgeois is the beginning of wisdom. I know, doesn't that just drip with, uh, with socialist, commie, you know, uh, kind of a feel to it? But what Paul Rosenberg says really irked the indiv- intellectuals about the bourgeois was that they were stealing their thunder. Over the 19th and early 20th centuries, intellectuals, people who wanted to sell their ideas, were rushing into socialism because it would give them the same position the nobility used to hold, that of a legally privileged class. This, however, was also the moment when the Industrial Revolution was hitting, and people chose commercial goods above socialist theories. In other words, the masses the socialists expected to lead lost their interest. Look at it this way. Why would someone spend long hours with difficult authors promising a golden age when all the components of that golden age were for sale cheap at the corner store? So the people walked away from literary promises and toward shopkeepers offering the goods of a golden era at reduced prices. He says socialists have resented the bourgeois ever since. And there's also this concept in psychology called projection. Now, this refers to people seeing their own problems in others rather than themselves, of projecting their problems onto others. In this case, though, he says, I'm expanding that meaning. Socialists have not just projected their own problems onto the bourgeois. They've projected the problems of humanity onto them. Consider this uh, passage from Sinclair Lewis. It is not what the bourgeois man feels and aspires that moves him primarily. It is what what the folks about him will think of him. Now, what Lewis is complaining about is simply the stupidity of social standing. In other words, status. That, however, is something which afflicts more or less all of the human race. And if you take a close look at the hotbeds of socialism, academia, particularly in the social sciences, you'll find more fighting over status than you will among shopkeepers. Now, in the same book, Lewis complains that the standardized minds of the bourgeois are the enemy. That's astonishingly contradictory, seeing that socialists are the ones demanding standardization of millions of minds via compulsory schooling. Just one more time, this time from an Italian writer uh, named uh, Roberto Parvisi. The bourgeois is the average man who does not accept to remain such, and who, lacking the strength sufficient for the conquest of essential values, those of the spirit, opts for material ones, for appearances. So Pavarisi first condemns the bourgeois for not staying in their place. Then he blames them for caring too much about appearances, something that again afflicts nearly all of humanity. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, with that, I'll stop. I think my point is made that the castigation of the bourgeois has been unfair at the least. And from here, he pivots to the freedom of the bourgeois and says, as I noted at the beginning of this post, the bourgeois way of life is something to be sought. And the reason for this is simple. The shopkeeper is a self-directed being making his or her own choices, living with the consequences of them, and generally functioning as a free agent upon earth. Free agents are free to grow, to raise their children with more independent minds, and to make their own choices. In short, they choose their own paths. In contrast, the poor are held within a narrow mode of life. The modern poor live on money obtained from the state. They're necessarily and fundamentally dependent upon the choices of others. The aristocracy or nobility, those with enforced privileges, are likewise slaves to the system, 
regardless of the fact that they control a great deal of it. Their money and their standing are tied directly to the system. Without it, their position would vanish and they'd have to find actual jobs. So the bourgeois and those like them enjoy much actual freedom and only the bourgeois hold their own fate in their own hands to any appreciable degree. Oh my gosh, I love that. I love that description. Paul Rosenberg says, more than that, the bourgeois are more or less the people who can who make, repair, and deliver everything. We know in a direct way that others can't, that we matter. We are producers, and without production, everyone dies. We, the producers, as it happens, are quite good at organizing ourselves. And even when we do that even half well, we enjoy independent success. Guilt isn't baked into our pie. Finally, he says it needs to be said that long-term commerce, the commerce of shopkeepers, supports human civilization. And he shares a passage from a legal historian named John Maxey Zane, who said, Trade makes for honesty, fair dealing, mutual comprehension, sanity and soundness, toleration of others, peace among men, aggregations of capital, division of labor, the ease and comfort and grace of life, the leisure for study, and the amelioration of customs and manners that produces so large a part of civilization. End quote. So Paul Rosenberg sums it up like this. Bourgeois people, of course, act stupidly from time to time. But again, that's a human problem, not a class problem. And despite those errors, bourgeois remains a more rewarding form of life than the others. Now, he says, I hope we can stop apologizing for it. I don't know. To me, it, it, I, I love this on a number of levels. Number one, that's, that's really the best explanation that I've seen of what it means to be bourgeois. And I definitely agree. I want to be a self-directed individual. I want to chart my own course as much as possible. I want to be responsible for my own life. And I do not want to be dependent upon the state. If I'm going to prove my value, I'm going to prove it, you know, in the marketplace and, and hopefully be, you know, rewarded for whatever value I'm providing accordingly. That to me seems like a great way to go. There's, there's incentive to improve. There's incentive to refine oneself or one's product, or one's content, whatever that, whatever it may be. But I'm very much opposed to, to the coercive, collectivist juggernaut that right now is trying to force all of us into conformity, into uniformity of thought, claiming that this is where utopia lies. And so when they say bourgeois attitudes, you know, as if it's some kind of a, a dirty word, you know, just like I like to revel in wrong think, I think I'm going to revel in my bourgeois status. Partly because it's it's a healthy, good place to live, but I, I'd be I'd be lying if I told you there's also a little sense of satisfaction in that. Wow, it must really irritate those who who have that tendency, that controlling nature, that just want to make sure that they've got their thumb on everybody's head, and you don't do anything without my permission or without my license. I kind of like to see those people sputter and fume. Not because it's necessarily the kind thing to do, but just because, you know, they have no right to be telling other people what to do. Maybe that frustration will one day spark a desire to try something different. I can hope. I'd like them to be happy. But more than that, I want to make clear, my life is mine, not theirs. And I would encourage you to uh, understand and develop a similar attitude. And once you've got it, do not yield a single inch. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you haven't subscribed for my daily show notes, to my daily show notes, sorry, terrible English today, I would encourage you, please go to my website. It's thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on the show notes tab and just go to the bottom of any of my show notes and you will find a subscribe button. It's going to ask you for your email address. I'm not going to bombard you with lots of uh, interesting offers and, and uh, you know, I, I'm not going to be throwing stuff at you, you know, several times a day. Monday through Friday, which is when I do this program, I will send you a copy of my show notes, including links to my various guests, to the various articles that I share, in the hopes that if you found them interesting, you will have the opportunity to to dig a little bit deeper. Oftentimes, uh, those who are subscribers will attest, I, I don't have the time to get to all of the different stories that I list in the show notes. I know I try to use my time as wisely as I can, not go off on too many rants, but, you know, sometimes I just can't help it. So, with that said, let's see. A couple other articles I really wanted to share with you. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Substack. I, I'll, I'll just give a shameless plug here. I, I started my own Substack account back at the end of November. This is the one called Hide in Plain Sight. And it's just a two-minute truth bomb that uh, will go well with your morning coffee. Uh, if you're getting the day started and you just want a little truth bomb that's, that's completely non-political, but offers just kind of a unique perspective from a couple steps one way or the other to, to help you have a slightly different perspective on various principles and purposes and things that make life worthwhile. I call it hide in plain sight because I'm addressing things that matter, but that sometimes get lost in, in all the distractions, like they're hiding right there in plain sight. See what I did there? I also connect with a number of different substacks through that Substack sub account. I am becoming such a fan of this platform. And, and this may sound weird, like, wait, are you encouraging people to start their own competing substacks? Absolutely. Yes, I am. It's a marvelous platform. They do not censor. And I think that's a wonderful thing in and of itself. The Good Citizen is one of my favorite substack accounts to visit just because um, the Good Citizen has, a, I think, a very solid take on things that are going on. There's some really... Uh, some good wry humor that comes along here as well, but a lot of useful information. Case in point, I've linked to uh, a recent post. This is a part of a three-part series. This is part one, 101 Steps to Enslave Humanity. Now, I know it's like, well, that, <laughs> that doesn't sound very pleasant, but I guess my point here is if you want to understand, if you're serious about understanding the situation in which we find ourselves today, and I'll be the first to admit, it's, it's a complicated situation. It's not just something that can be summed up in a couple of sentences. You have to have a grasp of what led us here. You have to understand and connect the dots of how did we get from there to here. And this is where the good citizen has compiled this wonderful primer of 101 steps to enslave humanity. And I'll just give you a couple of examples here. Just to, to, to help you understand how... Plotting a century of transformations toward collapsing civilization and rising global technocracy for a Malthusian transhumanist agenda. That's what's at stake here. And some of this stuff may seem like, well, I don't know if I don't know if that makes sense or not. But when you see how it starts to fit together, you realize, my goodness, this isn't just, you know, oh, look what kind of accidentally happened as 
you know, history unrolled. There's some pretty deliberate actions that have been taken here, global hierarchy being one of them. The Good Citizen talks about how the events focused on this list mostly refer to the dominant Western Empire of the past century and her Anglo predecessor. Now, occasionally there are references to Anglosphere allies and global partners and institutions like the United Nations. Hovering above all governments, including the British monarchy and the United States, are what we might call the high order. And the exact composition of this high order is speculative, though everyone has their theories, including zealots who are absolutely certain theirs is the right one. But the point here is the details and speculation around this high order aren't worth fretting over too closely to understand this list, only that this top group is not more than a few hundred people, yet it exists and asserts total control and power over all other bodies and institutions below it, many that were created or co-opted to serve at its command. Now, why, why are we pointing this out? Well, come on, what happened just a couple of weeks ago in Davos, Switzerland? Think, use your head. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't, you know, thousands and thousands of people meeting under the auspices of the UN. This is part of that higher order. Okay, the World Economic Forum could be a good part of this or an example of it. But as a concrete example, central banks and taxation. There is no greater method of controlling a population than through finance and laws where, uh, from where debt, taxation, and inflation become the ultimate chains. Only closed societies of socialist or communist states have greater control over their people through agriculture and food insecurities. From the second smartest guy substack post on the original social engineering sin of servitude through taxation and debt, quote, under the various guises of liberty throughout the ages, one of the most effective means of control has always been accomplished through finance. Limit disposable income and the propensity to borrow increases. As debt increases for the average person, so do fears and insecurities. Increase fears and insecurities and it's that much easier to impose control. And that list begins with the 19th century hijacking of the U.S. financial system and money supply by the Rothschild banking cartel located in the present-day city of London Crown Corporation, where 12 families have controlled the British monarchy and the United States Corporation for more than two centuries. Now, if you want to go further down the rabbit hole, there's a nice link that will take you there. But suffice it to say, this isn't something that was just pulled out of, uh, pulled out of uh, the good citizen's ear. And I just want to point something out here. You know, we, we think of America as being an exceptional nation. And part of what made us exceptional was the fact that for a good portion of our history, we had limited government that existed for the purpose of guaranteeing individual rights, independence, free markets, and private property. But over time, America did adopt policies like central banking. And it adopted income tax and social welfare and regulation of private commerce and the creation of massive standing armies. When we didn't have those things, we were an exceptional nation. Now, we're pretty much like every other nation on the earth. So that is just one example of 101 steps to enslave humanity. If you can find the time to read this, I think you would find it well worth your while. I don't know if you'll agree with everything in there or not. That's up to you. But this is some fantastic food for thought, and I strongly recommend you take a look at it. One other article that I want to point you toward is it better to be ruled by a corrupted system or to rule a corrupted system? I know, it's a trick question. Well, it's still a corrupted system. So, yeah, the, the key is uh, maybe, maybe it's not so good to, uh, to be part of a corrupted system. Got an article here from Josiah Lippincott. Steal yourself, conservatives. 
He says the American right is in for a hell of a ride. Patriots need to promote and focus within themselves the habits of resistance. And this is a pretty, this is a pretty straightforward, no sugarcoating, no BS assessment of how right now it's very clear that uh, the, the Democrats have, have seized control of the election apparatus. And he says, you've, you've got to understand that uh, what this means is that uh, basically the, the right, you know, conservatives are very unlikely to win another election under the current media narrative, under the current control with nearly unlimited money, with the political control that the left has. This is not to say we need to pack it in and go home or jump off the nearest bridge, but the point is it's not about to change anytime soon. The right has lost or may very soon lose its ability to win national elections. That's not an end, it's a beginning. But he says it requires a fresh view of our true political reality. And this is, this is some powerful advice here because he's talking about, you know, the, the most successful political movements in history don't necessarily come to power through electoral majorities. Think about America's ruling class. They didn't. The left didn't seize power in the media, Hollywood or Wall Street, by holding a vote. Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates didn't gain the ability to censor tens of millions of Americans and make COVID policy because they had popular backing and people voted for it. So he lays out the situation that we're facing and says, look, what we need to do, the the response that we need to have to the left's demands that you submit is come and make me. It's the spirit of resistance. And in fact, he comes right down and he, he brings up the whole aspect of spiritual warfare as well. But he says at the core, it all boils down to this. Too many conservatives are just interested in making policy. That's not enough. Guiding a corrupt system, he says, is little better than being guided by it. In the end, it amounts to the same thing. Much better to dismantle the system altogether. So true patriots, he says, should dedicate themselves to fighting utopian and tyrannical communism wherever they find it. They should promote and focus it within themselves. The habits of resistance. We will not submit. Let this phrase never depart from your lips or your mind. We will not submit. Bury it in your heart. We will not submit. Josiah Lippincott says, when we have done this, and only when we have done it, will victory in this spiritual war come within reach. This is some pretty strong medicine. Strongly recommended. This is The Brian Hyde Show.